Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and it's a pleasure to be with you again uh, today. It's my absolute pleasure to introduce to you uh, Professor Miles Kaler, the Distinguished Professor uh, at the School of International Service, American University. This is a Summit Dialogue, Episode 8, and we are going to explore today, Miles and uh, myself, uh, who are the global governors today? Mile is currently the Distinguished Professor uh, of the School of International Service, American University in Washington, D.C. Previously, he was the Rohr Professor of Pacific International uh, Relations and Distinguished Professor of Political Science at the School of International Relations and Pacific Studies at the University of California at San Diego. Uh, he has published uh, extremely widely in the fields of international politics and international political economy, uh, many volumes, many edited volumes, including he co-edited with David Lake, Politics in the New Hard Times, and then also he edited a volume uh, titled uh, Network Politics, Agency, Power, and Governance. I should also mention, by the way, that Miles is a senior fellow currently at the Council on Foreign Relations in Washington uh, as well. So let me turn uh, to Miles here in our very plush studio <laughs> at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy and engage Miles on who are the global governors today. So, uh, welcome. Uh, Miles, it's a pleasure to have you with us in our plush studio today. <laughs> Thank you, Alan. Great to be here, and great to be in Toronto this fall. Yeah, well, it's a real uh, pleasure to have you with us uh, for a term, uh, and we're sorry that you're going to have to return to the heart of the empire. Uh, so um, uh, today, we I wanted to raise with you, uh, who are the global governors? Uh, and so... Let's start by looking a little bit uh, into IR theory, very little. Um, but in 2010, Deborah Avant, Martha Finnemore, and Susan Sell, um, the editors, along with a number of our colleagues, uh, wrote a, a volume called Who Governs the Globe? Uh, there they defined uh, the global governors as authorities who exercise power across borders for the purpose of affecting policy. Uh, they saw international relations as moving beyond just the activities and policies of states. As they said, the authority of states may have some distinctive qualities, but we see little evidence that the authority uh, states wield is ultimate or that it is a zero-sum opposition to other types. So the question becomes, how important do you think the assessment was at that time of this question of global governors? I think there's no question that their volume was was very influential um, and uh, picked up on a major phenomenon uh, that has been become increasingly evident since the turn of the century, which is global governance is no longer just about intergovernmental organizations, the major organizations we're very familiar with, like the IMF, the World Trade Organization, uh, the World Bank. It includes many other actors. And most important, and the quotation you gave from their book is very important in this respect, these other actors can construct governance 
on their own, uh, which also exercises authority in the international system and over other actors. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, here it could be multi-stakeholder arrangements of various kinds. It could be private governance, standard setting, for example, which is done by purely private means. But in all these cases, authority is being exercised, behavior is being changed, and national governments and intergovernmental organizations are not necessarily involved. Right. Well, so uh, let's take it from there, and um, and I I want to raise an, another um, uh, volume that was written uh, a bit of time ago, and that was uh, Bob Cohane and David Victor. Uh, building on some earlier work that uh, David Victor had been involved in, kind of created or a piece that was central to this notion of regime complex, a loosely coupled set of specific regimes, right? Uh, they were looking at the world of climate change. Uh, while the two were still tackling, you know, kind of the IR organizational form of uh, international regime type, uh, it was evident from their examination of climate change in 2011 that it was beyond just states and intergovernmental organizations, but in particular, they could at least in their illustrations and diagrams and included uh, the sub-state actors and non-state actors, including private corporations, etc. Uh, how important do you think this kind of uh, research, either in the climate area more broadly, is to our understanding of international relations today? Well, I think it's not just climate. I think climate is where you can see these processes and actors most visibly and most uh, significantly probably, but there are many other issue areas. In fact, most of the new uh, areas or new agenda items globally have these same characteristics. And I would point to, for example, global health, where uh, you have broad coalitions that can that include NGOs, a private foundation like the Gates Foundation, which has more resources than many intergovernmental organizations, um, uh, Big Pharma. They're all part of the global health regime complex, if you will, and they all are interested in the rules that are being set uh, and the authority that's being exercised, quite apart from the World Health Organization, which is still important and still in many ways a central actor, but only one among many. And you could make the same conclusion about governance of the Internet, mm-hmm. um, peace building in the area of the United Nations, uh, where you have NGOs, national governments, bilateral aid donors, uh, all involved in countries like the South Sudan uh, that are post-conflict or in the middle of conflicts trying to build peace there mm-hmm. and, and, and end conflict. Um, and you can go right down the list of most new agenda items that uh, would have these same characteristics of a fairly fragmented, um, almost coalitional type of structure in which many different actors and many different organizations in many cases are acting in some broad way on a similar set of issues, although they may have special interests in particular issues within that Mm-hmm. regime complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's stick for a moment before I get to some of your new research on illicit financial flows. But before we get there, let me keep you in the kind of the uh, global climate action arena. And in particular, I, I wanted to raise with you the um, recent uh, summit in San Francisco, the Global Climate Action Summit, which occurred in uh, September this year. Uh, it brought together uh, 16 states, hundreds of cities from around uh, the world, some uh, nearly 2,000 businesses. 
that all seem to press ahead or seeking to press ahead with uh, climate change. Of course, this was a, um, a summit that had been arranged by Governor Jerry Brown and Michael uh, Bloomberg, uh, the former mayor of New York and uh, venture capitalist, etc. Um, so the question is, with the technical withdrawal of the United States from the actual Paris Climate Accord, uh, does, you know, this complex lead potentially to a substitute for state action in the climate arena? Well, I think, I don't think any of the actors in, uh, in San Francisco at the Global Climate Action Summit would argue that it is a substitute. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they would all be obviously much happier if the national government in the United States and elsewhere was involved, engaged, and leading the way. Um, ideally, it would be a complement to those efforts. But in the absence of a U.S. government that is acting or is in many ways even moving backwards on mm. climate change mitigation at the national level, um, these actors can make a difference. And I think that's the argument that was primarily being made at San Francisco, that we do not have just because the national government is not taking the lead and maybe even moving in a different direction does not mean that other actors cannot move forward in, once again, this kind of grand coalition, um, often a very fractious coalition with actors who don't agree on everything about what should be given the highest priority, but all concerned with the issue of climate change and how to mitigate and adapt to climate change, that these actors can make a difference. Um, and we shouldn't just wait for national governments or, inter or formal intergovernmental agreements. And the Paris Agreement, of course, which preceded this and which the Trump administration had withdrawn from, was exactly an exemplar of this type of global governance because it gave a specific and uh, explicit role to non-state actors in the implementation of climate change mitigation. You know, it's an interesting debate here that we have as between, you know, who are the global governors in this in this respect? I mean, it's interesting that our colleagues, uh, Josh uh, Busby from uh, Texas, University of Texas, and Johannes Uperladen uh, from SAIS, they wrote a piece right at the time of the San Francisco summit in the Washington Post, and they suggested that the research shows that the subnational and non-state action had promised, but can't replace uh, the policy as the cornerstone of, of climate mitigation. Uh, as a final point, uh, recently we did a podcast with our colleague Angel Shu from uh, Yale, and she had prepared a report um, called uh, uh, Cities, Regions, and Businesses, in which really we're reporting on the commitments that were being made below the state level. And the question, uh, you know, there was a, 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 both um, uh, my, our colleagues from uh, Texas and from SICE, and then Angel agreeing that, you know, okay, so it's nice to have uh, the, uh, the, the sub-state actors, the non-state actors there, but it's still being driven uh, by states. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I think, once again... In an ideal situation, they would be complementary, and I think uh, research done by Tom Hale and Charlie Roger and others have suggested that national governments that are proactive do produce subnational and non-state actors that are more proactive mm -hmm. or can be more proactive. Mm -hmm. So ideally, they work in tandem. But I do think there's a little bit of confusion here in in, in some of the, sure. the research that's been put out, which 
is that subnational and non-state are not the same. So the state of California can do things, much like a national government, they can regulate in various ways, admittedly not over the same area and with possible consequences in other subnational jurisdictions in the United States, which may not match theirs or may even run counter to theirs. For example, I think the uh, Busby and Erpelainen piece suggested that if uh, California's actions lowered uh, the price of, of hydrocarbons, that, that they might be used more intensively in other states that are not acting the same way. But nevertheless, California is a governmental unit, and it does have regulatory authority of a particular time, and its enforcement capabilities are not insubstantial. California has been has managed to reduce its electricity consumption, for example, through purely state action. Um, and that could continue mm-hmm. um, through all, a number of regulatory measures. Non-state is different. They do not have that kind of authority. You know, the authority they have typically is reputational, naming and shaming, uh, sharing of information, uh, encouraging better practices, that sort of, that can have an, an impact. And the secondary effect that they have is on governments themselves. So that's the other thing I feel some of this analysis leaves out, that these actors are not just acting by making commitments on their own, for example, corporations or mm-hmm. cities, um, but they also serve as lobbies on national governments so that when the political tides turn, there are constituencies and coalitions that are in favor of climate change mitigation that can push governments in the right direction. So once again, I, I, I basically share the view that it would be great if national governments were on board and clearly climate change mitigation would go faster with national governments on board. But I do take a much more positive view, I think, of what these, first of all, separating out subnational, mm-hmm. especially in federal systems like Canada and the United States and what they can do versus non-state and, and understanding that they can move policy forward in different ways, uh, even when national governments are not active. Okay. Uh, that's important. I mean, it's interesting because I've talked to some of our colleagues in the climate uh, in the climate area, and there seems to be a real tension there uh, of views, right? So Angel, Josh, and company, uh, in, a, in a sense, suggesting that, the, that they can um, kind of encourage, they can help yeah. drive states. But there are some folks, and it's closer to the Tom Hales, Matthew Hoffman here at the University of Toronto, uh, in, uh, who are of the view that, you know, they can take the lead. They can push it uh, and are not restrained necessarily by state action. Well, the most the most positive view, I guess, would be one that I, I'm willing to consider. I'm not sure we have all the evidence yet for it, but that is... Climate change and many other uh, uh, international issues of the, on this, new, what if you might call new agenda items, have different targets. So you need to change to really uh, accomplish climate change mitigation. You need to change the behavior of individuals, cities, states, national governments, uh, subnational units, and corporations, especially corporations perhaps. And it may well be that having different strategies run by different actors that are targeting each of these classes of actors whose behavior you're trying to change is the most efficient division of labor. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that we have, first of all, I'm not expert in the area of climate change mitigation. Someone like your colleague, Matt Hoffman, could speak to this, but I I don't know that we have the evidence that that sort of division of labor efficiency argument really is carrying the day. I can see the, the logic of it. 
Um, because I think climate change in particular, but you could make the same argument about areas of global health as well, you really are in some cases trying to change individual behavior. Well, how do you do that best? Is it through national law or is it through changing social social attitudes and changing and, and encouraging social networks, which will change individual behavior mm-hmm. in the way that we've seen with smoking, for example, where changing legislation was obviously part of getting smoking reduced. But a lot of it is social pressure. Uh, it's a lot of people seeing what their neighbors are doing, what their family's doing and deciding they want to behave in the same way. Okay. And that's not something governments necessarily are the best at accomplishing. Fair enough. Uh, it's a debate we'll continue to, Examine and 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 uh, see what the evidence is as we as we go forward. So let me switch a little bit, but in a related uh, examination, not not climate change, but your work recently uh, from the Council on Foreign Relations on uh, global governance to uh, combat illicit financial flows, uh, measurement, evaluation, and innovation. That was the report. It, uh, you took the lead, but there were a number of other um, uh, colleagues who were involved in writing in, uh, in specific areas. Uh, it, it certainly did suggest that here's another area where we've got uh, a variety of global governors, right? Uh, maybe you could describe a little for the audience the landscape that you found in this particular global governance area. Sure. I think, I think, uh, and I want to emphasize, I'm a relative latecomer to this issue. There have been many, many people working in the area of illicit financial flows for a very long time. Um, what I discovered, and one of the reasons I became interested in it, is it is a very good example, another good example mm-hmm. of this new model of global governance. And the best way to think about it, I found, was to look at, at, at a timeline in which this issue begins as an intergovernmental, fairly narrowly defined issue to deal with money laundering by criminals, uh, drug traffickers in particular in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, later terrorists, um, but criminals of the kind that anyone anyone on the street would understand are criminals, real crimes that, Mm -hmm. that, that we're concerned about. And the money laundering is, in fact, of concern to us because of what are called these predicate crimes. Um, this was largely a, a, an issue that was promoted by the United States, um, countering these illicit flows, these cross-border illicit financial flows. It got other governments, particularly industrialized country governments, on board. They formed a uh, soft law intergovernmental organization called the Financial Action Task Force in 1989. Mm-hmm. And that task force has remained in many ways a core institution in this issue area on the area of, in the area of money laundering and after 9/11 as i mentioned counterterrorism became part of this portfolio but what makes it part of the new governors or the new governance that we've been discussing in regard to climate and other areas is the agenda keeps shifting it keeps growing and it's growing not because of governments anymore but because other entities, particularly NGOs, have gotten deeply involved in this issue because of corruption and kleptocracy in developing countries and the way financial resources are being drained from those countries through these illicit financial channels. And most recently, on the issue of tax evasion mm-hmm. and also tax shelters, which reflects on the issue of inequality, particularly in the industrialized countries. Um, and these broad coalitions, which include... NGOs working in this area like Global Financial Integrity, Transparency International, and so on, um, they have really pushed this agenda along. And so some behaviors or some practices which were criminal in national legislation 
but were not included in the International Financial Action Task Force initially, such as tax evasion, now are. Um, and corruption has become a global issue that governments in the industrialized country are now concerned about for the first time. This has taken place over the last decade, but it's relatively recent. All of this has happened because of non-governmental pressure okay. and action. Governments have been interested. They've been, industrialized countries have been concerned because of its effects on development, for example. Corruption obviously sets back development or can impede development. But there was a kind of second or third order concern until the NGOs got involved and really pushed it up on the international agenda. What's interesting now is we're at a, a final state. What's well, not final, perhaps. I don't know where the agenda is going, but the agenda now includes tax avoidance, which is, or uh, it's more diplomatically put, tax optimization across national jurisdictions, i.e. multinational corporations which shift profits and revenues across national jurisdictions to minimize their tax burden. Technically, in most cases, although it's a very gray area, uh, it's not technically illegal. There isn't a predicate crime attached mm -hmm. to it. But many see it as illicit because it is damaging, particularly for developing countries, that multinational corporations can escape contributing to the budget of these, the revenues of these, these developing countries right. and, and to our own countries in certain respects mm -hmm. to the advantage of some jurisdictions which set very low ta corporate tax rates and attract, at least on paper, the investment and revenues from these corporations. So that's where things stand now. That one is not yet, I think, fully in the illicit category, and there's a big debate about whether it should be included or not. But it's gotten a lot of attention from the OECD and other multilateral organizations at the present time. And I take it that this was part of this ongoing debate around Ireland and Ireland's tax regime. Within uh, the EU, especially. Within the EU, yes. especially. But it's not just Ireland. I mean, no, there, of course there, not. But Ireland yeah. gets a lot of attention <laughs> because <laughs> some of the big corporations, <laughs> some of the big American corporations in particular, have used Ireland very heavily mm -hmm. for these purposes. Um, it's not clear, frankly, what the benefit to Ireland really is from this status. And, and there's also a question of how much has to be done multilaterally. There have been arguments made recently that countries can move unilaterally to change this by simply taking a proportion of revenues from corporations that, mm. that are earned on their territory. Um, it doesn't have to be multilateral. And it looks like the UK in particular may be moving in that direction to take unilateral action, sort of forcing the hand of other governments to forge a more concrete multilateral uh, framework. But as I say, this is not this is not the centerpiece or was not the centerpiece of the initial stage of our project on illicit financial flows because Tax evasion clearly is crime and is does provide a source for many illicit financial flows. Mm -hmm. Tax avoidance of this kind is in a gray area. Gray area. Yeah. yeah. Now I would note too that internationally, of course, where you see it emerging is, of course, um, I'm thinking of the uh, um, the uh, Agenda 2030 because. Um, Goal 16, yes, that's which right. is peace and security, but then good governance. Yeah, and it's the good governance aspect which has now included the, uh, the anti-corruption. Absolutely. It, it explicitly mentions reducing illicit financial flows. So the Sustainable Development Goals for the first time incorporate illicit financial flows and their reduction as a goal that has serious effects negative effects on development and should mm -hmm. be reduced. So it now is formally, if you will, if the if the, S, the sustainable development goals, the SDGs are 
a statement of the development agenda going forward, this issue is now formally part of that agenda. Part of that agenda, because yeah. I mean, when you looked at it, when you look at it, you know, kind of just superficially, it looks all about the kind of classic peace and security, but that's no. not the case. No. And this has been, this has been uh, typical along the way. Once again, like other issue areas of this kind, there has always been a, an intergovernmental element moving along with this agenda expansion. So, there is a United Nations Convention, anti-corruption convention, for example, mm -hmm. which means that states have signed on to the idea that fighting corruption, fighting kleptocracy, and the illicit financial flows that go along with it are an obligation of states as well. It's not a very, doesn't have a lot of teeth, the convention, but it does signify an intergovernmental um, dimension that goes along with this non-governmental dimension as well, this agenda setting that the NGOs have been carrying out. And and But yet, a lot of the enforcement that goes on, as in the current scandals surrounding the Malaysian 1MDB mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the Dansk Bank scandal, which is the other big one that's on the front pages right now or the, in the media right now, the enforcement is basically still very much in the hands of national of the, of the state. Or secondarily, EU, EU is still getting its regulatory apparatus on anti-money laundering together in mm -hmm. a way. Mm -hmm. um, but national governments are the ones who really can impose criminal penalties against those who are conducting these illicit financial flows. And that gives them a very big role. The U.S. Department of Justice is, for example, investigating both the 1MDB and the Dask Bank scandal. The so the 1MDB, I take it, was a state-owned... Or, or, it was a development fund, fund put together by the Malaysian government, which was basically used as a... is alleged to have been used <laughs> as a slush fund by the, the previous government of Malaysia uh, and its prime minister, both for political purposes, uh, helping candidates to win elections, mm -hmm. but also skimming for personal aggrandizement by, by the former prime minister and his wife. So there was a personal corruption issue. There was also kind of a political slush fund side to it. And, of course, the intermediaries, uh, some of whom have now been indicted in the United States, one of them, uh, a Goldman Sachs, two, two, oh, yes. two of them Goldman Sachs mm -hmm. bankers, uh, those individuals obviously also did very well by skimming a certain measure, amount of this at, at the time. So the one MDB scandal is is very very large, um, as is the Dansk Bank scandal. Slightly different there. There it was really money laundering from Russia primarily through mm -hmm. a small branch bank of Dansk Bank in Estonia, um, and that was just a complete breakdown in the oversight of their compliance with anti-money laundering uh, regulations. Okay. And, and well, it's, you know, evident that there are significant areas of global governance in, in terms of climate change, in terms of illicit financial flows, in terms of health that you've raised, mm -hmm. that these, you know, are kind of cla uh, classic, for lack of a better term, challenges that are on the... Um, international relations uh, arena to try to make progress to meet these very difficult challenges, some of them, in fact, climate change potentially existential. But the, but the question is, how much does the resurgence in kind of the geopolitical world, um, and the, you know, the rivalries, particularly now we see a, a kind of gr growing rivalry between the United States and China, trade, other arenas, security potentially in the South China Sea or the East China Sea. I mean, how much does that kind of put a cap on this kind of burgeoning 
uh, you know, set of global uh, global governors? Um, well, this is that's a very interesting and very important question. Um, clearly, authoritarian states, China and Russia in particular, uh, have no great love for civil society organizations mm-hmm. and non-state actors of this kind, and corporations in these gov- in these countries are very much under the thumb of the government, even if they're not formally state-owned. They obviously respond to government regulations and signals of various kinds. So they're not going to be really truly independent actors. So we can put aside for China and Russia the fact that they, whether they have truly independent civil societies, I mean, there are very heroic individuals in Russia who are certainly trying to maintain a level of independence. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think the, the scope for any internationally connected NGOs in these societies is pretty limited and probably shrinking. Uh, so then the question is, well, how do these governments behave in global governance that's changing in this way? Right. And clearly they have a preference for intergovernmental um, and probably small numbers, plurilateral, not multilateral mm-hmm. types of organizations that enact only soft law. In other words, they don't want binding obligations. And they prefer them to be government to government because they can control that process. Sure. Um, And that does pose real problems for this kind of global governance. Um, On the other hand, China does have a very vibrant environmental sector with lots of NGOs. They have, as as Tom Hale and Charlie Roger and Liliana Andonova have pointed out, they do do participate actively in um, climate change internationally, climate change mitigation. Yes. Admittedly, only because the government has signaled that climate That's change is a major a priority, priority. Yeah. but still they're there. Um, mm-hmm. They are government-organized NGOs often. They're gongos, not NGOs. But there is something there. Um, Russia, I'm less certain about what the situation is there, but I suspect there is participation to the degree. Once again, if it's in line with government priorities, then you probably will see mm-hmm. participation. If it's not, you know, human rights, forget about it. Uh, <laughs> and in some of these other areas... I mean, global health, I think China is being pulled into global health more and more, but um, it doesn't really have the civil society infrastructure. The big INGOs are basically from the major industrialized countries and secondarily from some of the other mm-hmm. liberal democratic developing countries. You know, Brazil has played a major role in global health, for example. Sure. Um, so <clears throat> so I think there is an asymmetry here in terms and, and looking at it from the point of view, say, China, they look at this new system and they see Western Still, Western governments dominating the intergovernmental organizations, Western NGOs dominating the new forms of global governance, (laughs) big Western corporations being in the lead in many of the sectors that are taking lead in climate, such as the oil sector. And so they look at this world, they say, well, it's just another way in which the North or the West is continuing to dominate Dominate. global governance. Um, Of course, the obvious solution would be for them to have a real civil society so they can participate as well, but that's obviously not going to happen anytime soon. One one last thought on on this area is the – actually in the intergovernmental area. I mean, this this playing out of the leadership of Interpol, Mm. uh, which is very odd. I mean, here the head of Interpol, Chinese uh, national, goes home and basically gets arrested and and taken taken out. And then the Russian um, effort to try to take uh, the head of Interpol and obviously a pushback from the West and others uh, against uh, 
Russia in part because there is a view that they've been abusing uh, the right. the execution. What does one say about um, something like that and, and the long-term implications? Well, I think it's going to require, uh, and there was a very interesting article in the Financial Times this week about this issue at the time of the vote you mentioned. Yes. Um, <clears throat> it's going to require some very intensive, and I think there's pressure on the permanent bureaucracy at Interpol, which really does the work day to day. You know, when a government sends in a notice and says, we want this person, you know, pulled over, um, there's going to have to be some intensive vetting of these requests that come in from authoritarian governments to determine whether this is serious, you know, serious criminal charges or is this simply persecution of a political opponent. Mm -hmm. That's going to be very contentious, I suspect. Of course, the government that's responding to these requests does not have to do anything if they don't think it's legitimate just because Interpol sends it out. Interpol is, in some sense, a, a big information exchange, as I understand it. Yes. So it's not they have any real legal authority to say to another government, well, this government has asked us to get this person arrested, do it. Um, they can't. So the United States or Canada or another government can always say, well, we're just not going to do anything about this. We don't believe this. But on the other hand, there have been cases, apparently, the human rights organizations are concerned because there have been cases where Governments have re re received one of these notices from Interpol without examining with any great care, just taking the person in mm -hmm. for questioning at least, mm -hmm. even though the person has done absolutely nothing wrong um, or has only been a political dissident. And that creates some real unease, Issue. even when it happens only in a few cases, so far as we know. So I think Interpol is going to have an interesting – the world in which we're dealing with powerful states that are authoritarian and really don't share some of the basic norms mm -hmm. in global governance – um, it's going to be a different world. That's going to require multilateral organizations to act differently. The IMF is confronting this currently with China on the question of d the debt that is being built up with the Belt and Road Initiative. Mm -hmm. So the United States has made very clear it is not going to support any IMF program, which is essentially bailing out Chinese loans to these countries. Well, the problem is no one knows what these loans are. They're t totally non-transparent. Their mm -hmm. terms are non-transparent. The IMF is under a lot of pressure to make the Chinese uh, and the governments involved uh, to give greater accountability, better accountability, very yep. better information about these, so that some judgment can be made by the IMF. So okay. it's not just that these countries, China and Russia, are going to change the system. They may well have to change to fit the system if the multilateral organizations and their supporters, not just to the United States or Europe, but also in the developing world, push back right. and say these are the norms we want to see. And take it or leave it, right? Uh, otherwise, the IMF won't be involved. And, and I think it's fair to say if the U.S. says that and the Europeans are on board as well, which I suspect they are, then the IMF won't be involved uh, okay. in some of these cases. So it'll be an interesting – it's a it's a very, very different world. In some areas like climate, it seems to me, China is essentially on the same page. Um, you know, they, they are interested for their own national reasons to deal with climate change, maybe not in the same to the same degree or at the same speed that we would want them to, mm -hmm. but they're on board with that goal. Okay. In other areas, like the area I've been looking at, illicit financial flows, not always entirely clear um, where they come down on this. It sort of depends on what crimes are being connected to these okay. flows. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you, Miles. Sure. I mean, this has been a great kind of tour. Uh, of of the uh, new areas of global governance and the new actors, the multiplicity of actors that we're now seeing in the international relations system. So thank you very much. Thank you, Alan. I enjoyed it. 
You've been listening to the Global Summitry Podcast. This episode was edited by Kyle Fulton, and the music you heard was composed and performed by Rory Lavelle. You can find more of his music at rorylavelle.bandcamp.com.